Well, good morning again. When I was in the fourth grade, and it was a windy, windy day, often in the fall of the year, my friends and I would button the top button of our raincoats around our necks and wear our raincoats like capes. I was free. I was free to stretch out my arms out in front of me and to run into the wind, my raincoat flapping behind me, anticipating liftoff. Released from the constraints of gravity and the tyranny of adult sensibilities that would talk about the impossibility of personal flight because that's the way things are, I was young enough to still believe that the world is malleable and not fixed, sure that we had just gone flying and that all it took was a kiss to make the hurt from falling go away. And then I grew up and put away childish things and began to dwell in the real world of politics, making a living, sorrow, and difficult people. But in my days of personal flights of fancy and freedom, I read and reread Harold and the Purple Crayon by Crockett Johnson. I was fond of the whole series of Harold's Purple Crayon adventures. Harold's fairy tale, Harold's trip to the sky, Harold at the North Pole, and Harold's circus, in which Harold goes for a walk on a tightrope and tumbles into a circus where, armed with his trusty purple crayon, He shines. He was my hero. I wanted to be like Harold. Harold is an out-of-the-box thinker. Harold had a vision, a dream, a quest, and he followed it armed with his courage and his crayon. Harold's world is full of possibilities, and as he journeyed, he created the reality that he needed. He was curious and compassionate He could create something out of nothing. He wasn't afraid to ask for help. And when he ran into trouble, as we all inevitably do, he had the creative imagination to craft a solution. And ultimately, he knew the answer to his question. He knew the way home. He knew his place in the universe and in the family of things. He knew where his bedroom was and where there was a moon and the moon always followed him. So as we launch our month-long exploration of creativity this morning, I will speak to the importance that having that kind of vision plays and the creative process in each of us. I'm interested in the possibilities of risking awakening and cultivating our curiosity. But first, I would like you to indulge me for a moment. Did everybody get a large artist palette, (laughs) a.k.a. paper plate? If you didn't, raise your hand. Oh, my goodness. Okay, would would somebody grab some more of them in the back? Are there not more to give away? Okay. Oh, there are? Okay, Christine, could you get some more maybe from the cupboard in the office? I'm so sorry. We'll pass those out. And did everybody get a pencil? Yeah, make sure you don't have two plates. You can pass those around. If you didn't get a pencil, please raise your hand. Okay, we need a couple pencils right up here. Just keep your hands up till 
They come around. Great. Wonderful. Looks like they need one way in the back, back there, on the sound side. There should be more plates. Oh, does anybody need any more plate? Do you need a plate? Okay. Oops, okay. Kristen, I mean, I'm sorry, Christine will be here in just a moment. So this little moment is brought to you by a TED Talk I watched. It was actually about a professor at Stanford who uses this exercise in his classes, and I thought it might be fun for you, too. Um, Okay, so raise your hand if you need a palette. Raise your hand high so everyone can, they can find you. Great, keep them up. So, so what I'd like you to do is this. I'd like you to take your plate. You see that little circle? That's where you're, you're drawing. And I'd like you to draw the person sitting next to you very quickly. Choose the person who is sitting right next to you, and when I say go, you have 30 seconds to draw your neighbor, neighbor, okay? Ready, set, go. Keep going, going, going. You don't have much time. Faster, drawing. Open yourself up. Go, 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 go. Draw, draw, draw. Look carefully, get it exactly. <laughs> okay, ready, stop. Okay. So, so lots of laughter, lots of laughter, exactly. Quite a bit of what looks like embarrassment. And I thought I heard a few sorries. <laughs> well, according to the TED Talk on this, this is exactly what happens every time this is done with adults. There are lots and lots of sorries. And it adds to the evidence that we fear the judgment. We're embarrassed to show our ideas to our peers. According to Tim Burton, the CEO of IDEO, a design firm, this fear causes you to be conservative in your thinking. You might have a wild idea, but you're afraid to share it. But if you try this exercise with kids, they have no embarrassment. They show off their drawings like crazy. So as I talked with friends about the theme for this platform, I was struck by how many told me stories of their own creative pursuits abandoned, paths not taken, passions lost, and hopes of bringing out the art inside themselves, but also about their fear that bringing out that art was somehow irrational. It was just a dream. Nobody wants to suffer the fate 
of the old bureaucrat whom Antoine de Saint-Exupéry described in his Wind and the Sand, rolled up into a ball of genteel security, raising a modest rampart against the winds and the tides and the stars. And over time, he went on, the clay of which you were shaped has dried and hardened, and not in you will ever awaken the sleeping musician, the poet, the astronomer that possibly inhabited you in the beginning. And yet, for so many of their there is also some elusive standard we we feel that we must meet, some perfection. So can you imagine this? The artist Henri Matisse once said, it has bothered me my whole life that I do not paint like everybody else. But what I want you to understand is that it was simply not possible for Matisse to paint like everybody else because he was not everybody else. He was Matisse, and only Matisse could paint like he did. If only we could always say to ourselves, I am going to create like me. There's something wild in making art. Any child with a blank paper and some finger paints knows that. Knows that. Any child with a drum or a tutu knows that. There's something unreasonable, spontaneous, fiery, and to make time for it, to clear a space for it, to give it energy, and to dedicate yourself to it as an adult, that act of pushing back the furniture of your daily life and rolling up the carpets of all your other obligations so that the wild dance, the wild art, the wild singing can begin, well, that's a spiritual practice I can get behind and one that I too rarely practice. Children naturally explore and interact with the world. They don't need prodding. We come into the world that way. And if, as adults, we feel otherwise, it's not because it's been, it's not because of our inherent nature or something lacking in us. It's because it's been sucked right out of us. Like many of you, I suspect, if you ever did return to art, it took a good long while before returning and having been, having been told by my art teacher in the sixth grade to not bother taking any other art class again that I didn't have it in me, whatever that means. But when I entered college in 1969, I didn't have a clue what, what I was going to major in. And then I was told by some wise person not to worry, that I'd just sort of feel my way into a major once I knew what I was passionate about. Does this sound familiar? I figured that that must include some serious noodling around, dabbling with a little of this and a little of that. So along with some basic classes I had to take, I took an art class and a writing class. I threw a few pots. I wrote a few god-awful poems, which I took to composing in a spiral shape, hoping, I'm sure, that the professor would be so astonished by my utter ingenuity in, in form that he'd forget my sophomoric state of writing. And by the summer after my freshman year, I'd figured it out. 
I chose my major. Now, it turns out that one of the most frightening statements a college student can say to their parents, <laughs> other than, I'm pregnant, <laughs> or my girlfriend's pregnant, is, I'm going to be an art major. <laughs> you see, parents translate that to mean, I'm going to suck all of your money for four years and then move in with you and deliver pizza. <laughs> but I want to remind all of you that creativity is an essential part of everything we do in life, not just art. And what I discovered as a college studio art and art history major and it's true in life in general, is that the prerequisite for doing exciting work is to be excited about it yourself. Reaching to do or make something that you haven't done or made before, and which seems a little bit scary, just beyond your comfort zone. It was through being around artists, learning the language of color and form, trying new approaches, this shy girl adopted a new spirit, taking risks to try new things, staying out of ruts, refusing to be paralyzed by the fear of imperfection or even failure, opening myself to try new things. There's something about that innocence and joy when you don't quite know what you're doing. And it freed me to enter one of the most fearless and creative periods of my life. I produced giant room-sized fabric sculptures, clay sculptures, engravings, raw linen weavings, one of which hangs in the capital of Idaho. I made some good art and I made a whole lot of bad art, but the process enabled me later on to continue in that creative vein, and after a 20-year absence, to return to playing the piano I'd long abandoned. And I became somewhat serious about it. I studied at the Peabody Conservatory and practiced three hours a day, mostly because I love Chopin, a composer who at the age of seven had already written a polonaise in G minor, and whose music fit my romantic bent. All I know is that when I discovered him, I knew I had to meet him, even though he had been dead for decades. He became one of my all-time favorite dead guy crushes. <laughs> so when you paint or you create collages, as I do, when you face a blank ca a canvas with a palette of color and a brush, you are absolutely open to truth, to the truth without and the truth within. You are utterly exposed, for you have nothing to lose. You're vulnerable, deliberately. You're waiting to be surprised. You're trying to tell and hear the truth. You're trying to see clearly. You're trying to breathe. The English playwright Peter Schaeffer, who wrote the play that became the Oscar-winning movie Amadeus, explored the relationships between Mozart, whose genius was brilliant and unpredictable and enduring, and Antonio Salieri, a court composer who had a long, celebrated, and ultimately pedestrian career. 
When asked what he saw as the central difference between the two men, he told Schaefer that he pictured Mozart running up to the well of inspiration and diving in, head first, without stopping. While Salieri walked up to the side of the well and peered over, wanting to see what was at the bottom before he dipped his net. It turns out that all of the artists that Schaefer interviewed for Amadeus were willing to dive headfirst into the raw, exhilarating, and sometimes unfriendly experiences of art and of life. I believe that their stories tell us something about how to open up to allow creativity into our own lives, how to stay awake. The artist Marc Chagall wrote somewhere, the dignity of the artist lies in his duty of keeping awake the sense of wonder. And in this long vigil, he is also himself striving against a continual tendency to fall asleep. The whole point for the artist making art or the baker making bread by hand or the person in a relationship to a lover, a child, to a parent, to a friend, to a community, trying to make something durable, beautiful, flexible, original of that partnership, something honest and honorable out of the blank canvas of relationship. The whole point is to stay awake, alert, available, and breathing. So where does all this inspiration come from? The painter Chuck Close, who is fond, is fond of saying, inspiration is for amateurs, and the rest of us just show up and get to work. But so much of it comes out of the process, he said. If you try to preconceive everything you do and conceptualize it, you're going to do the same thing over and over again. If, however, you just get busy and things occur to you in the process, you make the rules, and therefore you can break them. The poet Naomi Shihab Nye was asked when it was, when it was that she first felt that urge to write poetry, and she said, Possibly, I started to write as a refuge from our insulting first-grade textbook. Come, Jane, come. Look, Dick, look. Were there ever duller people in the world? (laughs) You had to tell them to look at things. Why weren't they already looking? (laughs) Nye believes that one of our most precious resources for inspiration comes from gathering up poems that touch something in in ourselves and keeping them close by to email or to send to someone who might be hurting. For 30 years, she's carried around a tattered piece of paper in her wallet with a poem called The Sky by William Safford. So inspiration, it seems, comes from looking, from collecting things you love, and it also comes from noticing something ordinary right in front of you that reawakens a deep-felt memory. I was reading in preparation for this platform about the art of Jean-Simeon Chordon, painting in France three centuries ago and called by some as the best still-life painter ever. 
He made, he made paintings of the most ordinary things, oranges and scallions with a knife on the board, quiet children holding balls, feathered game birds waiting to be plucked, and over and over through the decades of his work, the same cups and saucers and copper pans appear in his work, slightly rearranged, the same cracked crockery, crockery and glasses, the same objects that were still at hand all around him. He conveys something, somehow the sensation of glimpsing something ordinary and realizing with deep memory that it is very beautiful. The paintings don't tell any story. They're not allegories. They're not symbols of some complicated message. But there's kind of a mysterious quality about them, at least that's what I find, that conveys with great reverence the dignity of simple things. I think that sometimes that happens here in this community. Perhaps that's the entire point. Through the most ordinary things, held mindfully a little while, a simple task that we're doing, a brief chat, a story shared, maybe a a measure of music, one full breath drawn in our meditation, the one period where breathing is the most important thing. In these most ordinary things, something beautiful is glimpsed or known again. Think for a moment about something else, a blonde Luke Skywalker, lightsaber in hand, dueling with the imposing black-masked Darth Vader. Now think about the sounds that accompany that vision. Have you got it in your mind? When George Lucas asked Ben Burt back in 1977 to be the sound designer for Star Wars, Burt was still in graduate school at USC. But once he saw the production paintings of the lightsaber battle, he said, I have in my mind something almost immediate. He was a projectionist in the time, at the time at the USC Cinema Department. And in the projection booth, there was a motor on the projectors that made a wonderful hum. It was a musical hum and sounded like a lightsaber to him. So we recorded that sound, but it didn't sound quite fierce enough, and so he kept hunting. He said, I was doing some other recording in in my apartment. I had a broken microphone cable, which when I carried the mic past the TV, picked up a buzz from the TV picture tube. Just the kind of thing, thing you normally wouldn't want in your recording. You'd reject it. But I thought... Oh, that buzz sounds dangerous. So we combined the buzz and the hum of the projectors, and they became the basic lightsaber sound. He went on vacation with his family in the Poconos, and his backpack frame got caught on a guy guy wire overhead and kind of plucked it. He thought it sounded like a laser gun, and so he recorded the zing of the wire. He struck it with pieces of metal, a wrench, his wedding ring, and various other things. And those recordings became the basic sound for all of the blasters in Star Wars. In reading about Chardon, I was reminded about Bert. The one I'm just speaking of, that is. 
Bert, who created the voice for R2-D2 and also the endearing Wally in a later movie. And he said that the successful robot voices have been those that always had in them a disguised human voice, giving the character what I call soul. To portray a gust of wind echoing down a giant canyon of towers built from trash, I dragged a punching bag across a carpet and recorded that sound. When Wally drops a compacted block of garbage and it bangs on the ground, he said that's exactly a pluck on a harpsichord that he recorded one day when he picked up his daughter from her music lesson. Bert could have chosen to manufacture all of those sounds in the studio, but he chose to use field recordings and organic sound from real physical objects. He thinks that the audience, even if they can't identify a sound, associate those with those sounds with some kind of reality. So when they use those acoustic sounds in a science fiction or fantasy film, it really helps to sell the fantastic as being real because the sounds that are there sound comfortably memorable. Chardon and Burr, each in their own way, convey something new in a way that it is, that it is glimpsed or heard or known again. The creative imagination will always find a way to express itself, and part of our vocation I think as human beings is to aid and abet the transmission of creative expression. Scientists have found that we can tease our creativity and inspiration along. First, insight or creativity will not occur without being in a relaxed state. Trying to force an insight can actually prevent creativity. As two different researchers put it, that's why so many insights happen during warm showers. And there's a good reason that Google puts ping pong tables in their headquarters. It turns out that it's essential to let the mind wander. Scientists have also pointed, pinpointed early morning as the best time to coax new ideas to the surface. Right after we wake up, the drowsy brain is unwound and disorganized, open to all sorts of unconventional ideas. It occurs to me that if all religious communities should be spreading the good news, I'm just doing my part this morning by encouraging you to lie in bed, take warm showers, and play ping pong more often. But for all of their tips and experiments, neuroscientists still admit that the process of insight will always be a little unknowable. I'm convinced that creativity and imagination are fostered or hindered by the choices we make about how we engage life. I wanted this morning to illustrate this by showing uh, a clip from a uh, Sesame Street show where Ernie is trying to convince Bert to get on his phone, which is a banana, and talk to it to his girlfriend. Bernie will have, Bert will have nothing to do with it, of course, until he's finally cajoled along, and then he starts talking, and then he starts talking, and he, he says, well, 
there's nobody on the other end. And Ernie said, just keep going, it'll be there. And so he talks, and his friend Gladys suddenly comes to mind, and he's talking and talking to her suddenly, and they make it, she tries to make a date anyway. But the whole point of that is how important it is to have your imagination going at all times. I use this example because in order to be imaginative, we sometimes need to fling ourselves off the ledge of rationality. Children with their imaginary friends and their wide-eyed wonder understand this very well. It's we, adults, who have forgotten how to suspend disbelief and enjoy silliness. We've forgotten that sometimes you just have to talk on the banana. Following this year, this year, following our spring festival, we're going to have an art show. It's an open invitation to all of you, all of us, to consider the creative process. And this invitation is a joyful one, to spend the next few weeks creating something in, in paint or fabric or clay or metal or wood or styrofoam, whatever your hand is moved to render, whatever you're moved to make. I know that some of you have been creating art for years and bring your past work to. Anything goes. You know, we write platforms in part because we recognize what people are struggling with, what we're struggling with. And so I hope that we'll encourage each other to do what I just said. I know that I need that encouragement to remember that there's an artist inside of me. The only thing I'm sure I have that all of us have is the lives we're in the middle of right now. We get these brains and these bodies to do something with these years that we have been given. And I know I don't want to look back now or on any day of my life and wonder what could have been if I'd only been brave enough or curious enough or passionate enough or given myself permission to take the risk and get involved. I want to die knowing that I said yes as much as possible big or small, whatever I'm given the opportunity to do, I want to be able to say that I gave it my best shot. Not participation, not, not per perfection, but enthusiastic and engaged participation. My message is that we have to find our own purple crayons and discover our own inner heralds to remind us and inspire us to follow our vision of the life, life more abundant. We need our inner heralds and Ernie to encourage us to face boldly and directly our challenges and our fears. Life presents us with one creative possibility after another. So don't let people divide the world into creatives and non-creatives. Help people realize that they are naturally creative, that they need to let their ideas fly. And finally, Van Gogh, the Dutch artist whose paintings have sold for millions of dollars, but who was penniless when he committed suicide at the age of 37, was trying desperately to speak through his paintings. He said that his paintings say what words cannot. In one of the letters he wrote to his brother, Theo, he wrote, I want to do works that will touch people so that they will see inside this wretch of a man cast out by everyone, 
There is a soul that is beautiful, that despite all is motivated more by love than by anything else. The more I think it over, he said, the more I feel that there is nothing more truly artistic than to love people.